This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. December 27, 1928. Christmas was over, but in Orville, Ohio, the tinsel-covered tree in the horsed home at Vine and Paradise Streets still reflected the joy of the season. Little eight-year-old Ralph, four-year-old Melvin, and two-year-old Elgie occupied themselves with their gifts from Santa. Melvin had even taken his red fire truck out to show friends. They ended up three blocks away in a field behind the Ellsworth Hafner Harness Shop, where Melvin's truck earned him the title of fire chief in their role-playing game. Time got away from the youngsters, and Melvin seemed to realize it. He turned to an eight-year-old chum. Goodbye, Bobby. I got to go home now. Back at the house, with darkness descending, Melvin's mom, Zora, looked outside her kitchen window, expecting to see her son scampering about the front yard with his new toy. He wasn't there. She opened the door and called for him to come to supper. There was no response. Zora's husband, Raymond, checked in with neighbors, but Melvin was nowhere to be found. Desperation set in. At 8 p.m., the town's real fire chief sounded the village's central alarm. Hundreds of residents hurried to the station to see what the emergency was. With temperatures dipping into the low 30s, they formed into search parties, knocking on doors and scouring dark alleys, looking for the brown-haired, blue-eyed boy. But Melvin Horst would never be seen again. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com, this is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my podcast co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved, Episode 14, Melvin Horst. For a case that is approaching 100 years old, the Melvin Horst disappearance has seen an uncanny amount of activity recently. Just in the past five years, investigators have explored a suspicious fireplace in Kentucky, added an age progression drawing to a national database, and compared Horst family DNA to a Canton man who questioned his origin. Melvin is the oldest missing persons case listed on the Ohio Attorney General's website. 
The horse case has always had legendary status in its small Wayne County community. It led to half a dozen arrests, convictions and overturned sentences, confessions and subsequent recanting, and plenty of wide-ranging theories. It occupied newspaper headlines for years, receiving attention that was unparalleled until the kidnapping of the Charles Lindbergh baby five years later. But three things in particular have kept the file fresh into the 21st century. First, there's no evidence Melvin was killed. It's possible he was kidnapped and went on to live a full life, he and his descendants completely unaware of his background. Second is Orville Sergeant Jamie McGrill, a passionate investigator who took the assignment seriously when she was asked to look over the cold case file in 2017. She was just the latest in several generations of detectives who had been asked to do the same. It was her efforts that led to some new sleuthing. The third reason is that Melvin's sister, Elgie, is still around. At 96 years, she's not really expecting much. Her parents and brother all died without knowing what happened. But it doesn't stop the Orville Police Department from wishing they could give her an answer. On a recent afternoon, Elgie held the very fire truck that her brother had been playing with when he vanished. It had been recovered from the scene that day. And at Elgie's feet was a box of letters, hundreds of well wishes from people sent to her parents from all over the world. It was such big news, senders only had to write on their envelopes, Horst Family, Orville, Ohio, for the letters to find their way. Since Elgie was two when her brother vanished, she doesn't recall anything firsthand. Just what she's learned over the years from the townspeople who had followed every twist of their journey and from fragile newspaper clippings, but very little directly from her grieving parents. When I was growing up, they never mentioned him that I can remember. I never, uh, I never remember hearing them talk about him. But LG felt the effects of the loss just as personally as anyone. Her father buried himself in work and drink. Her mother lived in the shadow of a sadness that never went away. LG thinks the fact that Melvin never got the chance to start kindergarten kept her mom away from school when Elgie came of age. I thought lately that uh, my mother didn't go with me the first day of school, that I went with the neighbor girl that her mother took us. We just walked, though, and uh, I wondered uh, about that. While Zora and Raymond Horst kept their Christmas tree up for two years, waiting for Melvin to return, when the dead trunk was finally removed, no other tree would take its place for years. We never had a Christmas tree till uh, 
I was in high school. Then we had one. LG never got to experience the innocent, carefree childhood that her older brothers enjoyed before that day in 1928. My name's uh, Jamie McReel. I've been with the apartment for approximately 15 years coming up here. Um, and uh, I've been a police officer, investigator, and sergeant now. Uh, originally from the Cleveland area, moved down to Portage County, and then um, and I like the small town community and, and uh, applying here um, and got the job here. And it's similar to kind of where I grew up, so I like that. Several years ago, someone called about a bone found in a backyard. A colleague wondered if it was Melvin. Who's Melvin? Jamie asked. In 2017, the cold case was dropped in her lap. Maybe it was time for a pair of fresh eyes. The original file is long gone. Sergeant McGrill thinks it was probably turned over to the FBI at some point. All she has are newspaper clippings. Fortunately, the Orville town marshal at the time was Roy Horst, Melvin's uncle, and Roy preserved the facts of the case in a story that ran in True Detective magazine. Roy began his story with a scene setter. Orville is a quiet, friendly Main Street town, he wrote. Only 4,500 people live here. Half of them can call each other by their first name. Almost everyone knows what make car everyone else drives, who is voting for who, and who bought a new radio. Orville, where nothing important ever happened before. Roy said he was sitting at his own dinner table when the phone rang at 5.45 p.m. that day. It was his brother, Raymond. Melvin hadn't come home for supper, and his playmates hadn't seen him since he said goodbye to them a couple of hours earlier. Roy was immediately heartsick. Melvin was his shadow, always looking up to him, fascinated by the police badge he wore. Roy pushed himself away from the table. He found the boys Melvin had been playing with. They were all older, eight-year-olds Junior Hannah, Tony Yanto, and Bobby Evans, seven-year-old Tommy Johnson, and five-year-old Robert Ellsworth. Little Melvin got to be the fire chief in their game because he was the one with the fire truck. When Melvin left them, he was pulling his truck behind him. A handful of searchers were hastily assembled, and they covered the route Melvin would have taken from the field to his house. It wasn't far. It didn't take long. It was fully dark now, the night getting colder with each passing hour. Roy called Fire Chief William Heaps and asked him to pull the fire siren to rouse the village. The fire chief deliberated for about an hour. That was an extreme response. But when Melvin still hadn't been recovered by 8 p.m., he did just that. First to arrive were 60 members of the Orville Chamber of Commerce who had just assembled for their monthly meeting. Behind them came the town's 25 volunteer firemen who were sorted into seven groups, one for each of Orville's seven precincts. By midnight, 
400 volunteers saturated every neighborhood. By the next afternoon, various Oroville organizations had contributed to a $1,600 reward fund that would grow to several thousand in the coming days. Melvin's description was broadcast over the radio. His picture was published in every major newspaper in the state and then throughout the country, even beyond. One thing was clear. No boy could have so thoroughly lost himself that close to home. Melvin had been taken. Tips poured in. A boy who looked like Melvin was spotted on a streetcar in Columbus. A hotel keeper on the road to Akron questioned blood he'd seen on the hands of a motorist who had asked to borrow tools. A man from Smithville heard a woman in the back of a car yelling shut up to a child. A Mansfield woman heard two men talking suspiciously about the kid. None of that came to anything, but officers exhausted every lead. Meanwhile, detectives were trying to figure out a motive. Raymond Horst was a friendly man with no known enemies. Revenge seemed unlikely. He worked in a roofing factory to support his family of five. Nobody would mistake him for someone with money to spare for a ransom, But Raymond's brother, Roy, now that was another matter. It was the era of prohibition. Liquor was illegal. As town marshal, Roy had been a thorn in the side of local bootleggers. Since Roy was often seen with his doting nephew, was it possible someone had mistaken Melvin as his own boy? The first big break in the case came quickly. Junior Hannah, one of Melvin's playmates, was a bright boy, handsome, charismatic, straight A's in school. He seemed honest and trustworthy when he returned to authorities to tell them a new story. Junior said his cousin, 18-year-old Arthur Arnold, met him on the street that afternoon and told him to go get Melvin that he had something to give him. So Junior ran after Melvin, led him up an alley to the backyard of the Arnold home, and there Arthur and Arthur's brother-in-law, Bascom McHenry, lured Melvin into the house with an orange. Junior later fleshed out this story to include his uncle, Arthur's father, Elias Arnold. When police went to question the Arnolds, They found an orange missing a bite and a pint of whiskey in the backyard. Roy Horst knew the Arnolds. He'd arrested members of the family for violating liquor laws before. And so, four nights after Melvin vanished, investigators arrested six members of the Arnold family. 62-year-old Patriarch Elias his sons, 18-year-old Arthur and 30-year-old William, his 27-year-old daughter Dorothy, and her husband, 
Bascom McHenry, with no evidence other than Junior's testimony and an orange preserved in ice, they were charged with child stealing. A thousand people showed up for the arraignment the next day, waiting for word to come out of the small courtroom. Fearing a mob, Mayor Wygant had quietly held the hearing in the jail. The defendants quickly entered pleas of not guilty and were whisked out through a back alley and taken 12 miles away to the more substantial jail in Worcester. Bail was fixed at $10,000 each. A trial date was set for March 12, and Junior Hannah was held at the children's home in Worcester to await his moment as the state's star witness. The Arnolds never wavered from their claim that they had nothing to do with Melvin's disappearance. They offered alibis. Arthur was at a movie. Elias said he was at home till he joined the search party. William and the McHenrys were at a basketball game in Fredericksburg. Elias Arnold told reporters, I make no secret of the fact that I don't like Roy Horst, and I know he don't like me. But if I have a grudge against a man, I take it out on him, not on little children. Meanwhile, the search for Melvin continued. Fifty men spent six hours searching abandoned mine shafts in Fredericksburg, all because someone said they had seen strange men in the vicinity. On January 8, every school in Wayne County suspended classes and 8,000 pupils were turned loose on a countywide hunt. Police journeyed to cities in every direction, to look at boys that matched Melvin's description. None were him. Eventually, charges against four Arnold family members were dropped, but the trial for Elias and his son Arthur proceeded on schedule. Junior was a convincing witness, embellishing his story with vivid details. He said Melvin yelled out, Stop! Quit! when he was dragged into the Arnold house, and that later, from a hiding spot, he watched as they put Melvin into a car and drove away. It was enough for the jury. They found Elias and Arthur guilty after seven hours of deliberation, and the pair were sentenced to up to 20 years for child stealing. A week later, a shadow was cast on the outcome of that trial when a mysterious letter was dropped off at the Ohio State Journal in Columbus. The author said he was one of four rum runners who had been carrying a full load of liquor through Orville at 4.40 p.m. on December 27 when a little boy ran in the path of their car. They quickly pulled his injured body into the car, determined he was dead, and disposed of his body in a river near Columbus. The writer said they assumed the Arnolds would get off, since there was no real evidence to convict them. But since a jury had found them guilty, he decided to speak up. He didn't sign the letter, 
and his identity was never discovered. Whether that letter was a cruel hoax or not, it was right about one thing. The convictions would not stand. An appeals court granted Elias and Arthur a new trial, which opened on December 2, 1929, almost a year after Melvin's disappearance. Junior Hannah once again demonstrated his ability to talk intelligently and convincingly, but the defense succeeded in picking away the numerous conflicts in his testimony. This time, the jury found the Arnolds not guilty. And, to be fair, there were many in the community who now agreed with them. It was time to look for a new suspect. On December 12, five days after that second Arnold trial, the case took another dramatic new twist. This time in the form of a letter written on brown paper torn from a grocer's bag and addressed to the editor of the Orville Courier Crescent. The letter writer identified him or herself as someone with no role in the kidnapping, but as someone who knew where the lad was. They wrote, Print in the next edition of the Orville paper, also the Wooster record, on Thursday night, that you will pay us $100 as expense money upon delivery of the boy, alive, to the arms of his mother. All rewards will be canceled, and we will collect the century bill from his parents on Thursday night when we deliver the boy, providing we are not arrested or prosecuted. Just print this letter in the paper as it is, and we will know it is okay. For some reason, this time, officials desperately wanted to believe the letter writer, and there was great hope as the appointed time drew near. The letter was published with promises that whomever returned Melvin would not be prosecuted, and the town grew wild with excitement. Thursday night brought a downpour of rain and heavy fog, as well as a steady stream of gawkers hoping to witness the reunion. Police patrolled the neighborhood, moving motorists along to clear the way for the expected visitor. At the newspaper office, 30 reporters assembled to wait for word. At the Horst home, Melvin's parents sat on the living room sofa, their hands clutching the $100. Roy Horst wrote in his account of the case that he could see through the rain and the mist all the lights glimmering from every home within sight evidence that the entire town was keeping vigil as midnight approached. But midnight came and went, and dawn brought with it complete despair. In some corners, even rage that the promise had been broken and that the letter had proved to be another hoax. It was not the last. 
Several days later, an anonymous telephone message to the prosecutor's office said a young man wanted to confess to accidentally backing over Melvin with his car and then burying the body. It was investigated with a tired indifference. Police traced the story to chatter at a Canton barber shop, but the reported hit-and-run driver was never produced. Another disappointment. Still, the most amazing fiasco was yet to come. Authorities were still talking to Junior Hannah, the eight-year-old, now nine-year-old youngster, who had once admitted to taking Melvin to the Arnold house. There was enough in his story to make police think Junior knew more than he was telling. For yet another time, they pulled Junior from his class at school for a quick chat, and this time, Investigators found something in his manner that cast suspicion on Junior's dad, Charles. Charles Hanna was a happy-go-lucky sort of fellow who played the guitar, sang for friends, and drove a bakery wagon in Worcester. As Charles was questioned, he attempted to get the attention off himself by mentioning that his favorite drinking companion, Earl Connold, had been on a spree that day. So, Connold was hauled in. And for the next month, the two friends were repeatedly questioned, their saga playing out daily in the newspapers. A couple of sleepless nights of grilling was all it took for a bleary-eyed Charles to say, okay, yeah, He was there. Junior had taken Melvin to George Fry's garage, where Charles and Earl Connold were drinking and tinkering with a car. Connold killed the boy, and Charles had no idea where he took the body. When this confession was relayed to Connold, he showed astonishment and disbelief. Yeah, the pair of them were drinking in Fry's garage, but Melvin wasn't there. So Charles said, yeah, okay, Connell was right. Melvin wasn't there. He lied to investigators because he wanted them to leave him alone. He needed some sleep. But then the grilling resumed. Hours later, Charles recanted his recant and revived the Connell story to end the interrogation. There were days of this back and forth, before detectives decided to finally bring the two men together. Face to face, trembling with anger, they accused each other of killing the boy. For three hours, they damned each other while officers sat by waiting for something to break. It never happened. The problem with the whole Hannah and Connell storyline was that there was no motive Why would either man have killed Melvin? Well, on February 20, 
After a couple of months of this intense back-and-forth battle, yet another siege of sleepless grilling resulted in a new story from Charles Hanna, this time with a motive. He started by absolving Connold, saying he had nothing to do with it. Charles said he had gone to Akron that morning to buy whiskey from bootlegging friends who wanted to send a message to Town Marshal Roy Horst for interfering with their business. All of them believed Melvin to be his kid. They offered to pay Hannah 25 gallons of whiskey for helping them get the boy. Hannah said Melvin was brought to the garage by his son, Junior, and that Earl Connold never knew what happened as Hannah took Melvin to another part of the garage, struck him with a two-by-four, and carried him outside to a car owned by a pair of waiting gangsters. Hannah said he feared he had hit the boy too hard, and it was possible he was already dead as they tucked him into the car's rumble seat. He said he had no idea what happened to Melvin after that. Now, there were two more suspects for investigators to look at, Tony Novesco and Charles Tresco, a couple of 20-somethings from Akron with rap sheets to their name. But again, once Charles was allowed to sleep and woke refreshed, he took it all back, blamed the duress from the nonstop interrogation, and police could find no evidence to connect the Akron gangsters to Melvin's disappearance. Prosecutors finally just dropped their charges against everyone, and nobody was ever arrested again. Frankly, the case had become so muddled, it was impossible to decide who to believe anymore. Sergeant McGrill said there were even more theories than that. There was theories that he was found, I think, found in, like, or put into a grave at one point, and they had dug up a grave in the cemetery. There was theories that he was in this big pond, and they had taken all the water out of the pond and cleared that out to look in through this pond because there was some missing tile by the pond. So there was constantly little leads that were coming up through that. Um, There was a theory at some point that he got on a train and left, and somebody had taken him on a train and left. Does McGrill have a favorite theory? I don't know if I'd say favorite, but um, I don't. I I do I do agree with Roy, you know, kind of being the target here, you know, and saying, hey, you know, he busted some people. Um, I kind of agree with that one, saying it's possibly like some type of gangster or somebody trying to get back at him, and not sure what happened to him, but along the way, um, because this picked up so much popularity. Maybe they got scared and, you know, did something with Melvin because, it, like, for a kid to just disappear with no evidence, um, it, it's just hard to believe that. But even in that scenario, did they keep him alive, give him to a family, or ship him off to Italy, or did they kill him? Nobody can even answer that, though LG has never thought her brother survived whatever happened to him. 
I know I've wondered if somebody hit him with the car and killed him. There were two fellows going to work at the uh, round table. What did they call that? At the train depot. That they may have hit him and killed him. And then they threw him in a uh, engine. The train? Up. Oh. Um, that that's what I've always thought, that that's probably what happened. After Melvin vanished, the Horsts moved to Marshallville, another Wayne County village, in the 1930s, then to Eustis, Florida, in the 1940s. Her parents continued to follow up on every lead that came their way. They would go someplace to see a boy or something about Melvin and... uh, I would have to stay with uh, somebody while they went. Elgie's dad, Raymond, died in 1961. Mom, Zora, passed in 1986. Brother Ralph stayed in Orville and raised his family there before he died in 1992. Elgie is the last. She married and had four children, spending some of her years in North Carolina before returning to Wayne County. She was widowed for several years before marrying her current husband, Richard. She and many in her family have grown close to Sergeant McGrill as McGrill has pursued new avenues in Melvin's case. McGrill collected DNA from Elgie and a male relative so it could be added to a national database in case remains are ever found to compare it to. The DNA also came in handy when the son of a Canton man called to see if his adopted father could be tested. He was not Melvin. McGrill also got the National Missing Persons Database, NamUs, to do a drawing of what Melvin might have looked like as an elderly man. They added it to his file on their website. And in 2017, McGrill even followed up with a woman who had posted on the website forum Reddit about finding something suspicious in her Louisville, Kentucky home. She had a little-used fireplace with a loose tile, and when she moved it, she found an old newspaper underneath it, an original headline from Melvin's disappearance. So I found out her name and was able to track her down and call her and talk to her about it. And once I did that, um, she had since moved. There was somebody else there and or somebody moving in, I believe. So I had to contact the police department down there. And I'm sure they were kind of shocked on how old the case was. But I said, hey, could you do me a big favor and see if um, you can find out who the um, landlord is of this apartment so we can get in here and check the, check the newspaper and check this fireplace out? And they said, yeah. So they, with their help, we were able to locate the landlord. And I got him on the phone, talked to him about it. He okayed the police officers to come in there and look through the fireplace and found just old newspapers and nothing else. Jamie's chuckling there. I mean, how can she not? This case is ancient. And yet. 
I mean, there's still hope that there's something out there and you um, don't want to give up for a sister alone. She's still here. So like, and if she still has hope, why would we lose it? I mean, it's technically an open investigation still because we don't have anything. Um, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't know where he's at. So it will always be an open investigation until we have something solid. If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call Orville Police Sergeant Jamie McGrill at 330-684-5025. That's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal. be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loops serial killers of color a true crime podcast together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold we also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve at fruit loops we're serving up true crime with a side of history society culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.